Book Three, Chapter Twenty One of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Twenty One. Meanwhile, the poor poisoned folk at Marle End lived and apparently throve, in defiance of all the laws of the universe. Robert, as soon as he found that radical measures were for the time hopeless, had applied himself with redoubled energy to making the people use such palliatives as were within their reach, and had preached boiled water and the removal of filth, till, as he declared to Catherine, his dreams were one long sanitary nightmare. But he was not confiding enough to believe that the people paid much heed, and he hoped more from a dry, hard winter than from any exertion either of his or theirs. But alas! With the end of November a season of furious rain set in. Then Robert began to watch Marle End with anxiety, for so far every outbreak of illness there had followed upon unusual damp. But the rains passed, leaving behind them no worse results than the usual winter crop of lung ailments and rheumatism, and he breathed again. Christmas came and went, and with the end of December the wet weather returned. Day after day, rolling masses of southwest cloud came up from the Atlantic and wrapped the whole country in rain, which reminded Catherine of her Westmanland rain more than any she had yet seen in the south. Robert accused her of liking it for that reason, but she shook her head with a sigh, declaring that it was nothing without the becks. One afternoon she was shutting the door of the school behind her and stepping out on the road skirting the green, the bedabbled wintry green when she saw Robert emerging from the Mile End Lane. She crossed over to him, wondering as she neared him that he seemed to take no notice of her. He was striding along, his wide awake over his eyes, and so absorbed that she had almost touched him before he saw her. "'Darling, is that you? Don't stop me. I'm going to take the pony carriage in for Merrick. I've just come back from that accursed place. Three cases of diphtheria in one house, Sharnan's wife, and two others down with fever.' She made a horrified exclamation. "'It will spread,' he said gloomily. "'I know it will. "'I never saw the children look such a ghastly crew before. "'Well, I must go for Merrick and a nurse, "'and we must isolate and make a fight for it.' "'In a few days the diphtheria epidemic in the hamlet "'had reached terrible proportions. "'There had been one death, others were expected, "'and soon Robert and his brief hours at home "'could find no relief in anything, "'so heavy was the oppression of the day's memories. "'At first Catherine, for the child's sake, kept away.' But the little Mary was weaned, had a good Scotch nurse, was in every way thriving, and after a day or two Catherine's craving to help, to be with Robert in his trouble, was too strong to be withstood. But she dared not go backwards and forwards between her baby and the diphtheretic children, so she bethought herself of Mrs. Ellesmere's servant, old Martha, who was still inhabiting Mrs. Ellesmere's cottage till a tenant could be found for it, and doing good service, meanwhile, as an occasional parish nurse. The baby and its nurse went over to the cottage. Catherine carried the child there, wrapped close in maternal arms, and, leaving her on old Martha's lap, went back to Robert. Then she and he devoted themselves to a hand-to-hand -hand fight with the epidemic. At the climax of it there were about twenty children down with it in different stages, and seven cases of fever. They had two hospital nurses. One of the better cottages, turned into a sanatorium, accommodated the worst cases under the nurses and Robert and Catherine, directed by them and the doctors, took the responsibility of the rest, he helping to nurse the boys and she the girls. Of the fever cases, Charlotte's wife was the worst. A feeble creature at all times, it seemed almost impossible she could weather through. 
But day after day passed, and by dint of incessant nursing she still lived. A youth of twenty, the main support of a mother and five or six younger children, was also desperately ill. Robert hardly ever had him out of his thoughts, and the boy's dog-like affection for the rector, struggling with his deathly weakness, was like a perpetual exemplification of Ariminen and Ormuds, the power of life struggling with the power of death. It was a fierce fight. Presently it seemed to the husband and wife as though the few daily hours spent at the rectory were mere halts between successive acts of battle with the plague-fiend, a more real and grim Grendel of the marshes, for the lives of the children. Catherine could always sleep in these intervals, quietly and dreamlessly. Robert very soon could only sleep by the help of some prescription of old Merrick's. On all occasions of strain since his boyhood there had been signs in him of a certain lack of constitutional hardness, which his mother knew very well, but which his wife was only just beginning to recognise. However, he laughed to scorn any attempt to restrain his constant goings and comings, all those hours of night nursing, in which, as the hospital nurses were the first to admit, no one was so successful as the rector. And when he stood up on Sundays to preach in Murmel Church, the worn and spiritual look of the man, and the knowledge warm at each heart of those before him of how the rector not only talked but lived, carried every word home. The strain upon all the moral and physical forces, however, strange enough, came to Robert as a kind of relief. It broke through a tension of brain which of late had become an impression. And for both him and Catherine these dark times had moments of intensest joy, points of white light illuminating heaven and earth. There were cloudy nights, wet, stormy January nights, when sometimes it happened to them to come back both together from the hamlet, Robert carrying a lantern, Catherine clothed in waterproof from head to foot, walking beside him, the rays flashing now on her face, now on the wooded sides of the lane, while the wind howled through the dark vault of branches overhead. And then, as they talked, or were silent, suddenly a sense of the intense blessedness of this comradeship of theirs would rise like a flood in the man's heart, and he would fling his free arm round her, forcing her to stand a moment in the January night and storm, while he said to her words of passionate gratitude, of faith in an immortal union reaching beyond change or death, lost in a kiss which was a sacrament. Then there were the moments when they saw their child, held high in Martha's arms at the window, and leaping towards her mother, the moments when one pallid, sickly being after another was pronounced out of danger, and by the help of them the weeks passed away. Nor were they left without help from outside. Lady Helen Varley no sooner heard the news than she hurried over. Robert, on his way one morning from one cottage to another, saw her pony-carriage in the lane. He hastened up to her before she could dismount. "'No, Lady Helen, you mustn't come here,' he said to her peremptorily, as she held out her hand. "'Oh, Mr. Ellesmere, let me. My boy is in town with his grandmother. Let me just go through at any rate, and see what I can send you.' Robert shook his head, smiling. A common friend of theirs and hers had once described this little lady to Ellesmere by a French sentence which originally applied to the Duchesse de Chaussil. Une charmant petit fille sautit de l'œuf enchanté, so it ran. Certainly, as Elsmer looked down upon her now, fresh from those squalid, death-stricken hovels behind him, he was brought more abruptly than ever upon the contrasts of life. Lady Helen wore a green velvet and fur mantle, in the production of which even Worth had felt some pride. A little green velvet bonnet perched on her fair hair, 
One tiny hand, ungloved, seemed ablaze with diamonds. There were opals and diamonds somewhere at her throat, gleaming among her sables. But she wore her jewels as carelessly as she wore her high birth, her quaint, irregular prettiness, all the one or two brilliant gifts which made her sought after wherever she went. She loved her opals as she loved all bright things. If it pleased her to wear them in the morning, she wore them, and in five minutes she was capable of making the sourest Puritan forget to frown on her and them. To Robert she always seemed the quintessence of breeding, of aristocracy at their best. All her freaks, her saddies, her absurdities even, were graceful. At her freest and gayest there were things in her—restraints, reticences, perceptions—which implied behind her generations of rich, happy, important people, with ample leisure to cultivate all the more delicate niceties of social feeling and relation. Robert was often struck by the curious differences between her and Rose. Rose was far the handsomer. She was at least as clever, and she had a strong imperious will, where Lady Helen had only impulses and sympathies and engouement. But Rose belonged to the class which struggles, where each individual depends on itself and knows it. Lady Helen had never struggled for anything. All the best things of the world were hers so easily that she hardly gave them a thought, or rather, what she gathered without pain, she held so lightly, she dispensed so lavishly, that men's eyes followed her, fluttering, through life, with much the same feeling as was struck from Clough's radical hero by the peerless Lady Maria. Live, be lovely, forget us, be beautiful even to proudness. Even for their poor sakes whose happiness is to behold you, live, be uncaring, be joyous, be sumptuous, only be lovely. Uncaring, however, little Lady Helen never was. If she was a fairy, she was a fairy all heart, all frank, foolish smiles and tears. "'No, Lady Helen, no,' Robert said again. "'There is no place for you, and we are getting on capitally.' She pouted a little. "'I believe you and Mrs. Ellesmere are just kidding yourselves all in a corner, with no one to see,' she said indignantly. "'If you won't let me see, I shall send Sir Harry. But who?' and her brown fawn's eyes ran startled over the cottages before her. "'Who, Mr. Ellesmere, does this dreadful place belong to?' "'Mr. Wendover,' said Robert shortly. "'Impossible!' she cried incredulously. "'Why, I wouldn't ask one of my dogs to sleep there!' And she pointed to the nearest hovel, whereof the walls were tottering outwards, the thatch was falling to pieces, and the windows were mended with anything that came handy—rags, paper, or the crown of an old hat. "'No, you would be ill-advised,' said Robert, looking with a bitter little smile at the sleek dachshund that sat blinking beside its mistress. "'But what is the agent about?' Then Robert told her the story, not mincing his words. Since the epidemic had begun, all that sense of imaginative attraction which had been reviving in him towards the squire had been simply blotted out by a fierce heat of indignation. When he thought of Mr. Wendover now, he thought of him as the man to whom in strict truth it was owing that helpless children died in choking torture. All that agony of wrath and pity he had gone through in the last ten days sprang to his lips now as he talked to Lady Helen, and poured itself into his words. "'Old Merrick and I have taken things into our own hands now,' he said at last, briefly. "'We have already made two cottages fairly habitable. Tomorrow the inspector comes.' I told the people yesterday I wouldn't be bound by my promise a day longer. He must put the screw on Henslow, and if Henslow dawdles, 
Why, we should just drain and repair and sink for a well ourselves. I can find the money somehow. At present we get all our water from one of the farms on the brow. Money? said Lady Helen impulsively, her looks warm with sympathy for the pale, harassed young rector. Sir Harry shall send you as much as you want, and anything else. Blankets? Coals? Out came her notebook, and Robert was drawn into a list. Then, full of joyfulness at being allowed to help, she gathered up her reins, she nodded her pretty little head at him, and was just starting off her ponies at full speed, equally eager to tell Harry, and to ransack Churton for the stores required, when it occurred to her to pull up again. "'Oh, Mr. Ellesmere, my aunt, Lady Charlotte, does nothing but talk about your sister-in-law. Why did you keep her all to yourself? Is it kind, is it neighbourly, to have such a wonder to stay with you and let nobody share?' "'A wonder?' said Robert, amused. "'Rose plays the violin very well, but—' "'As if relations ever saw one in proper perspective!' exclaimed Lady Helen. "'My aunt wants to be allowed to have her in town next season, if you rule let her. I think she would find it fun. Aunt Charlotte knows all the world and his wife. And if I'm there, and Miss Laban will let me make friends with her, why, you know, I can just protect her a little from Aunt Charlotte.' The little laughing face bent forward again. Robert, smiling, raised his hat, and the ponies whirled her off. In anybody else, Elsie would have thought all this effusion as insincere or patronising, but Lady Helen was the most spontaneous of mortals, and the only high-born woman he had ever met who was really, and not only apparently, free from the nonsense of rank. Robert shrewdly suspected Lady Charlotte's social tolerance to be a mere varnish, but this little person, and her favourite brother Hugh, to judge from the accounts of him, must always have found life too romantic, too wildly and delightfully interesting from top to bottom, to be measured by any but romantic standards. Next day, Sir Harry Varley, a great burly country squire, who adored his wife, kept the hounds, owned a model estate, and thanked God every morning that he was an Englishman, rode over to Mile End. Robert, who had just been round the place with the inspector, and was dead tired, had only energy to show him a few of the worst enormities. Sir Harry, leaving a cheque behind him, rode off with a discharge of strong language, at which Robert, clergyman as he was, only grimly smiled. A few days later, Mr. Wendover's crimes as a landowner, his agent's brutality, young Ellesmere's devotion, and the horrors of the Mile End outbreak were in everybody's mouths. The county was roused. The radical newspaper came out on the Saturday with a flaming article. Robert, much to his annoyance, found himself the local hero, and money began to come into him freely. On the Monday morning, Henslow appeared on the scene with an army of workmen. A racy communication from the inspector had reached him two days before, so had a copy of the Churton Advertiser. He had spent Sunday in a drinking bout, turning over all possible plans of vengeance and evasion. Towards the evening, however, his wife, a gaunt, clever Scotchwoman, who saw ruin before them, and had on occasion an even sharper tongue than her husband, managed to capture the supplies of brandy in the house and effectually conceal them. Then she waited for the moment of collapse which came on towards morning, and with her hands on her hips she poured into him a volley of home truths which not even Sir Harry Varley could have bettered. Henslow's nerve gave way. He went out at daybreak, white and sullen, to look for workmen. Robert, standing on the step of a cottage, 
watched him give his orders, and took vigilant note of their substance. They embodied the inspector's directions, and the rector was satisfied. Henslow was obliged to pass him on his way to another group of houses. At first he affected not to see the rector. Then suddenly Ellesmere was conscious that the man's bloodshot eyes were on him. Such a look! If hate could have killed, Ellesmere would have fallen where he stood. Yet the man's hand mechanically moved to his hat, as though the spell of his wife's harangue were still potent over his shaking muscles. Robert took no notice whatever of the salutation. He stood calmly watching till Henslow disappeared into the last house. Then he called out one of the agents' train, heard what was to be done, gave a sharp nod of assent, and turned on his heel. So far, so good. The servant had been made to feel, but he wished it had been the master. Oh, those three little emaciated creatures whose eyes he had closed, whose clammy hands he had held to the last! What reckoning should be asked for their undeserved torments, when the great account came to be made up? Meanwhile, not a sound, apparently, of all this reached the squire in the sublime solitude of Muirwell. A fortnight had passed. Henslow had been conquered. The county had rushed to Ellesmere's help, and neither he nor Mrs. Darcy had made a sign. Their life was so abnormal that it was perfectly possible they had heard nothing. Ellesmere wondered when they would hear. The rector's chief help and support all through this had been old Merrick. The parish doctor had been in bed with rheumatism when the epidemic broke out, and Robert, feeling it a comfort to be rid of him, had thrown the whole business into the hands of Merrick and his son. This son was nominally his father's junior partner, but as he was besides a young and brilliant M.D. fresh from a great hospital, and his father was just a poor old general practitioner with the barest qualification and only forty years' experience to recommend him, it will easily be imagined that the subordination was purely nominal. Indeed, young Merrick was fast ousting his father in all directions, and the neighbourhood, which had so far found itself unable either to enter or to quit this mortal scene without old Merrick's assistance, was beginning to send notes to the house in Churton High Street, whereon the superscription Dr. Edward Merrick was underlined with ungrateful emphasis. The father took his deposition very quietly. Only on Muirwell Hall would he allow no trespassing, and so long as his son left him undisturbed there, he took his effacement in other quarters with perfect meekness. Young Ellesmere's behaviour to him, however, at a time when all the rest of the Churton world was beginning to hold him cheap and let him see it, had touched the old man's heart, and he was the rector's slave in this Marlend business. Edward Merrick would come whirling in and out of the hamlet once a day. Robert was seldom sorry to see the back of him. His attainments, of course, were useful, but his cocksureness was irritating, and his manner to his father abominable. The father, on the other hand, came over in the shabby pony-cart he had driven for the last forty years, and having himself no press of business, would spend hours with the rector over the cases, giving them an infinity of patient-watching, and amusing Robert by the cautious hostility he would allow himself every now and then towards his son's new-fangled devices. At first Merrick showed himself fidgety as to the squire. Had he been seen, been heard from? He received Robert's sharp negatives with long sighs, but Robert clearly saw that, like the rest of the world, he was too much afraid of Mr. Wendover to go and beard him. Some months before, as it happened, Ellesmere had told him the story of his encounter with the squire, 
and had been a good deal moved and surprised by the old man's concern. One day, about three weeks from the beginning of the outbreak, when the state of things in the hamlet was beginning decidedly to mend, Merrick arrived for his morning round, much preoccupied. He hurried his work a little, and after it was done, asked Robert to walk up the road with him. "'I have seen the squire, sir,' he said, turning on his companion with a certain excitement. Robert flushed. "'Have you?' he replied with his hands behind him, and a world of expression in his sarcastic voice. "'You misjudge him, you misjudge him, Mr. Ellesmere,' the old man said tremulously. "'I told you he could know nothing of this business, and he didn't. He's been in town part of the time, and down here, how is he to know anything? He sees nobody. That man Henslow, sir, must be a real bad fellow.' "'Don't abuse the man,' said Robert, looking up. "'It's not worth while when you can say your mind of the master.' Old Merrick sighed. "'Well,' said Robert, after a moment, his lip drawn and quivering, "'You told him the story, I suppose. Seven deaths, is it, by now? "'Well, what sort of impression did these unfortunate accidents,' and he smiled, "'produce?' "'He, he talked of sending money,' said Merrick, doubtfully. "'He said he would have Henslow up and inquire. "'He seems put about and annoyed. "'Oh, Mr. Osmer, you think too hardly of the squire, that you do.' They strolled on together in silence. Robert was not inclined to discuss the matter but old Merrick seemed to be labouring under some suppressed emotion, and presently he began upon his own experiences as a doctor of the Wendover family. He had already broached the subject more or less vaguely with Robert. Now, however, he threw his medical reserve, generally his strongest characteristic, to the winds. He insisted on telling his companion, who listened reluctantly, the whole miserable and ghastly story of the old squire's suicide. He described the heir's summons his arrival just in time for the last scene, with all its horrors, and that mysterious condition of the squire for some months afterwards, when no one, not even Mrs. Darcy, had been admitted to the hall, and old Merrick, directed at intervals by a great London doctor, had been the only spectator of Roger Wendover's physical and mental breakdown, the only witness of that dark consciousness of inherited fatality, which at that period of his life not even the squire's iron will had been able wholly to conceal. Robert, whose attention was inevitably roused after a while, found himself with some curiosity realising the squire from another man's totally different point of view. Evidently Mary could see him at such moments as wring from the harshest nature whatever grains of tenderness, of pity, or of natural human weakness may be in it. And it was clear, too, that the squire, conscious perhaps of a shared secret, and feeling a certain soothing influence in the naivety and simplicity of the old man's sympathy, had allowed himself at times, in the years succeeding that illness of his, an amount of unbending in Merrick's presence, such as probably no other mortal had ever witnessed in him since his earliest youth. And yet, how childish the old man's whole mental image of the squire was, after all! What small account it made of the subtleties, the gnarled intricacies and contradictions of such a character! Horror at his father's end, and dread of a like fate for himself! Robert did not know very much of the squire, but he knew enough to feel sure that this confiding, indulgent theory of Merrick's was ludicrously far from the mark as an advocate explanation of Mr. Wendover's later life. Presently, Merrick became aware of the sort of tacit resistance which his companion's mind was opposing to his own. He dropped the wandering narrative he was busy upon with a sigh.
Oh, well, I, I dare say it's hard. It's hard, he said, with patient acquiescence in his voice, to believe a man can't help himself. I dare say we doctors get to muddle up right and wrong. But if there ever was a man sick in mind, for all his book-learning they talk about, and sick in soul, that man is the squire. Robert looked at him with a softer expression. There was a new dignity about the simple old man, the old-fashioned deference which had never let him forget in speaking to Robert that he was speaking to a man of family, and which showed itself in all sorts of antiquated locutions which were a torment to his son, had given way to something still more deeply ingrained. His gaunt figure, with the stoop, and the spectacles, and the long straight hair, like the figure of a superannuated schoolmaster, assumed, as he turned again to his younger companion, something of authority, something almost of stateliness. "'Ah, Mr. Ellesmere,' he said, laying his shrunk hand on the younger man's sleeve, and speaking with emotion, "'you're very good to the poor. We're all proud of you, you and your good lady. But when you were coming, and I heard tell all about you, I thought of my poor squire, and I said to myself, "'That young man'll be good to him.' The squire will make friends with him, and Mr. Ellesmere will have a good wife, and there'll be children born to him, and the squire will take an interest, and, and maybe—' The old man paused. Robert grasped his hand silently. "'And th there was something in the way between you,' the speaker went on, sighing. "'I dare say you were quite right, quite right. I can't judge. And if there are ways of doing a thing, and it was a last chance, and now it's missed, it's missed.' Ah, it's no good talking. He has a heart, he has. Many's the kind thing he's done in old days, for me and mine. I'll never forget them. But all these last few years, oh, I know, I know. You can't go and shut your heart up and fly in the face of all the duties the Lord laid on you, without losing yourself and setting the Lord against you. But it is pitiful, Mr. Ellesmere, it's pitiful. It seemed to Robert suddenly as though there was a divine breath passing through the wintry lane, and through the shaking voice of the old man. Beside the spirit looking out of those wrinkled eyes, his own hot youth, its justice resemblance, its most righteous angers, seemed crude, harsh, inexcusable. "'Thank you, Merrick. Thank you. And God bless you. Don't imagine I'll forget a word you have said to me.' The rector shook the hand he held warmly twice over, a gentle smile passed over Merrick's ageing face, and they parted. That night it fell to Robert to sit up after midnight with John Allwood, the youth of twenty whose case had been a severer tax on the powers of the little nursing staff than perhaps any other. Mother and neighbours were worn out, and it was difficult to spare a hospital nurse for long together from the diphtheria places. Robert, therefore, had insisted during the preceding week on taking alternate nights with one of the nurses. During the first hours before midnight, he slept soundly on a bed made up in the ground-floor room of the little sanatorium. Then at twelve the nurse called him, and he went out, his eyes still heavy with sleep, into a still, frosty winter's night. After so much rain, so much restlessness of wind and cloud, the silence and the starry calm of it were infinitely welcome. The sharp, cold air cleared his brain and braced his nerves and by the time he reached the cottage whither he was bound, he was broad awake. He opened the door softly, passed through the lower room, crowded with sleeping children, climbed the narrow stairs as noiselessly as possible, 
and found himself in a garret, faintly lit, a bed in one corner, and a woman sitting beside it. The woman glided away. The rector looked carefully at the table of instructions hanging over the bed, assured himself that wine and milk and beef essence and medicines were ready to his hand, put out his watch on the wooden table near the bed, and sat him down to his task. The boy was sleeping the sleep of weakness. Food was to be given every half-hour, and in this perpetual impulse to the system lay his only chance. The rector had his Greek testament with him, and could just read it by the help of the dim light. But after a while, as the still hours passed on, it dropped on to his knee, and he sat thinking, endlessly thinking. The young labourer lay motionless beside him, the lines of the long emaciated frame showing through the bedclothes. The nightlight flickered on the broken, discoloured ceiling. Every now and then a mouse scratched in the plaster. The mother's heavy breathing came from the next room. Sometimes a dog barked or an owl cried outside. Otherwise, deep silence. Such silence as drives the soul back upon itself. Ellesmere was conscious of a strange sense of moral expansion. The stern judgments, the passionate condemnations which his nature housed so painfully, seemed lifted from it. The soul breathed an ampler ether, a diviner air. Oh, the mysteries of life and character, the subtle, inexhaustible claims of pity! The problems which hang upon our being here, its mixture of elements, the pressure of its inexorable physical environment, the relations of mind to body, of man's poor will to this tangled, tyrannous life, it was along these old, old lines his thought went painfully groping. And always at intervals it came back to the squire, pondering, seeking to understand, a new soberness, a new humility, and patience entering in. And yet it was not Merrick's facts exactly that had brought this about. Robert thought them imperfect, only half true. Rather was it the spirit of love, of infinite forbearance, in which the simpler, duller nature had declared itself that had appealed to him, nay, reproached him. Then these thoughts led him on farther and farther from man to God, from human defect to the eternal perfectness. Never once during those hours did Ellesmere's hand fail to perform its needed service to the faint sleeper beside him, and yet that night was one long dream and strangeness to him, nothing real anywhere but consciousness and God its source. The soul attacked every now and then by phantom stabs of doubt, a bitter, brief misgiving, as the barriers of sense between it and the eternal enigma grew more and more transparent, wrestling a while, and then prevailing. And each golden moment of certainty, of conquering faith, seemed to Robert in some sort a gift from Catherine's hand. It was she who led him through the shades. It was her voice murmuring in his ear. When the first grey dawn began to creep in slowly imperceptible ways into the room, Elsmere felt as though not hours but years of experience lay between him and the beginnings of his watch. "'It is by these moments we should date our lives,' he murmured to himself as he rose. "'They are the only real landmarks.' It was eight o'clock, and the nurse who was to relieve him had come. The results of the night for his charge were good. The strength had been maintained, the pulse was firmer, the temperature lower. 
The boy, throwing off his drowsiness, lay watching the rector's face as he talked in an undertone to the nurse, his haggard eyes full of a dumb, friendly wistfulness. When Robert bent over him to say good-bye, this expression brightened to something more positive, and Robert left him, feeling at last that there was a promise of life in his look and touch. In another moment he had stepped out into the January morning. It was clear and still as the night had been. In the east there was a pale promise of sun. The reddish-brown trunks of the firwoods had just caught it, and rose faintly glowing in endless vistas and colonnades one behind the other. The flooded river itself rushed through the bridge as full and turbid as before, but all the other water surfaces had gleaming films of ice. The whole ruinous place had a clean, almost a festal air under the touch of the frost, while on the side of the hill leading to Muirwell, tree rose above tree, the delicate network of their wintry twigs and branches set against stretches of frost-whitened grass, till finally they climbed into the pale, all-completing blue. In a copse close at hand there were woodcutters at work, and piles of gleaming laths shining through the underwood. Robins hopped along the frosty road, and as he walked on through the houses towards the bridge, Robert's quick ear distinguished that most wintry of all sounds, the cry of a flock of field-fares passing overhead. As he neared the bridge, he suddenly caught sight of a figure upon it, the figure of a man wrapped in a large Inverness cloak, leaning against the stone parapet. With a start, he recognised the squire. He went up to him without an instant slackening of his steady step. The squire heard the sound of someone coming, turned, and saw the rector. "'I'm glad to see you here, Mr. Wendover,' said Robert, stopping and holding out his hand. "'I meant to have come to talk to you about this place this morning. I ought to have come before.' He spoke gently and quite simply, almost as if they had parted the day before. The squire touched his hand for an instant. "'You may not perhaps be aware, Mr. Ellesmere,' he said, endeavouring to speak with all his old hauteur, while his heavy lips twitched nervously, "'that for one reason and another I knew nothing of the epidemic here till yesterday, when Merrick told me.' "'I heard from Mr. Merrick that it was so. As you are here now, Mr. Wendover, and I am in no great hurry to get home, may I take you through and show you the people?' The squire at last looked at him straight at the face, worn and pale, yet still so extraordinarily youthful, in which something of the solemnity and high emotion of the night seemed to be still lingering. "'Are you just come?' he said abruptly. "'Or are you going back?' "'I have been here through the night, sitting up with one of the fever cases. It's hard work for the nurses, and the relations sometimes, without help.' The squire moved on mechanically towards the village, and Robert moved beside him. "'And Mrs. Ellesmere?' "'Mrs. Ellesmere was here most of yesterday. She used to stay the night when the diphtheria was at its worst, but there are only four anxious cases left, the rest all convalescent.' The squire said no more, and they turned into the lane where the ice lay thick in the deep ruts, and on either hand curls of smoke rose into the clear, cold sky. The squire looked about him with eyes which no detail escaped. Robert without a word of comment, pointed out this feature and that, showing where Henslow had begun repairs, 
where the new well was to be, what the water supply had been till now, drew the squire's attention to the roofs, the pigsties, the drainage, or rather complete absence of drainage, and all in the dry voice of someone going through a catalogue. Word had already fled like wildfire through the hamlet that the squire was there. Children and adults, a pale, emaciated crew, poured out into the wintry air to look. The squire knit his brows with annoyance as the little crowd in the lane grew. Robert took no notice. Presently he pushed open the door of the house where he had spent the night. In the kitchen a girl of sixteen was clearing away the various nondescript heaps on which the family had slept, and was preparing breakfast. The squire looked at the floor. "'I thought I understood from Henslow,' he muttered, as though to himself, "'that there were no mud floors left on the estate.' "'There are only three houses in Mile End without them,' said Robert, catching what he said. They went upstairs, and the mother stood open-eyed while the squire's restless look gathered in the details of the room, the youth's face, as he lay back on his pillows, whiter than they, exhausted and yet refreshed by the sponging with vinegar and water which a mother had just been administering to him. The bed, the gaps in the worm-eaten boards, the spots in the roof where the plaster bulged inward as though a snake would bring it down, the coarse china shepherdesses on the mantel-shelf, and the flowers which Catherine had put there the day before. He asked a few questions, said an abrupt word or two to the mother, and they tramped downstairs again and into the street. Then Robert took him across to the little improvised hospital, saying to him on the threshold, with a moment's hesitation, "'As you know, for adults there is not much risk, but there is always some risk.' A peremptory movement of the squire's hand stopped him, and they went in. In the downstairs room were half a dozen convalescents, pale, shadowy creatures, four of them under ten, sitting up in their little cots, each of them with a red flannel jacket drawn from Lady Herdin's stores and enjoying the breakfast which a nurse in white cap and apron had just brought them. Upstairs, in a room from which a lath and plaster partition had been removed, and which had been adapted, warmed, and ventilated by various contrivances to which Robert and Merrick had devoted their practical minds, were the four anxious cases. One of them, a little creature of six, one of Chardon's black-eyed children, was sitting up, supported by the nurse, and coughing its little life away. As soon as he saw it, Robert's step quickened. He forgot the squire altogether. He came and stood by the bedside, rigidly still, for he could do nothing, but his whole soul absorbed in that horrible struggle for air. How often he had seen it now, and never without the same wild sense of revolt and protest. At last the hideous membrane was loosened, the child got relief, and lay back, white and corpse-like, but with a pitiful momentary relaxation of the drawn lines on its little brow. Robert stooped and kissed the damp, tiny hand. The child's eyes remained shut, but the fingers made a feeble effort to close on his. "'Mr. Ellesmere,' said the nurse, a motherly body, looking at him with friendly admonition, "'if you don't go home and rest, you'll be ill too.' I'd like to know who'll be the better for that. How many deaths? asked the squire abruptly, touching Ellesmere's arm, and so reminding Robert of his existence. Merrick spoke of deaths. He stood near the door, 
but his eyes were fixed on the little bed, on the half-swooning child. Seven, said Robert, turning upon him. Five of diphtheria, two of fever. That little one will go too. Horrible, said the squire under his breath, and then moved to the door. The two men went downstairs in perfect silence. Below, in the convalescent room, the children were capable of smiles and of quick, coquettish beckonings to the rector to come and make game with them as usual. But he could only kiss his hand to them and escape, for there was more to do. He took the squire through all the remaining fever cases and into several of the worst cottages, Milsom's among them, and when it was all over they emerged into the lane again, near the bridge. There was still a crowd of children and women hanging about, watching eagerly for the squire, whom many of them had never seen at all, and about whom various myths had gradually formed themselves in the countryside. The squire walked away from them hurriedly, followed by Robert, and again they halted on the centre of the bridge. A horse, led by a groom, was being walked up and down on a flat piece of road just beyond. It was an awkward moment. Robert never forgot the thrill of it, or the association of wintry sunshine streaming down upon a sparkling world of ice and delicate woodland and foam-flecked river. The squire turned towards him irresolutely, his sharply cut wrinkled lips opening and closing again. Then he held out his hand. Mr. Ellesmere, I did you a wrong. I did this place and its people a wrong. In my view, regret for the past is useless. Much of what has occurred here is plainly irreparable. I will think what can be done for the future. As for my relation to you, it rests with you to say whether it can be amended. I recognise that you have just cause of complaint. What invincible pride there was in the man's very surrender! But Ellesmere was not repelled by it. He knew that in their hour together the squire had felt his soul had lost its bitterness. The dead and their wrong were with God. He took the squire's outstretched hand, grasping it cordially, a pure, unworldly dignity in his whole look and bearing. Let us be friends, Mr. Wendover. It will be a great comfort to us, my wife and me. Will you remember us for both very kindly to Mrs. Darcy? Commonplace words but words that made an epoch in the life of both. In another minute the squire, on horseback, was trotting along the side-road leading to the hall, and Robert was speeding home to Catherine as fast as his long legs could carry him. She was waiting for him on the steps, shading her eyes against the unwonted sun. He kissed her with the spirits of a boy, and told her all his news. Catherine listened, bewildered, not knowing what to say, or how all at once to forgive to join Robert in forgetting. But that strange, spiritual glow about him was not to be withstood. She threw her arms about him at last with a half-sob. "'Oh, Robert, yes, dear Robert, thank God!' "'Never think any more,' he said at last, leading her in from the little hall, "'of what has been, only of what shall be. Oh, Catherine, give me some tea. I never did I see anything so tempting as that armchair.' He sank down into it, and when she put his breakfast beside him, she saw with a start that he was fast asleep. The wife stood and watched him, the signs of fatigue round eyes and mouth, the placid expression, 
and her face was soft with tenderness and joy. Of course, of course, even that hard man must love him. Who could help it? My Robert? And so now, in this disguise, now in that, the supreme hour of Catherine's life stole on and on towards her. End of Part 3 Chapter 21